When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Nesting right outside the window in the oak tree near the top is a bird with pretty feathers and her singing never stops. She's a lady bird and I know when you see her you will say everything's okay on the LBJ. As country music hit maker Lawton Williams' song from the 64 campaign has it, everything's okay on the LBJ. Between the election and the inauguration, Lyndon and Lady Bird shuttle back and forth between the White House and the LBJ Ranch in the hill country of West Texas. They originally bought the house on 233 acres from Lyndon's ailing aunt Frank in 1951. By the end of 64, the LBJ is 2,700 acres. At the ranch, it feels like everything is okay. But back in Washington? When I look at the newspaper and it says, President comes back from Texas, NATO, Vietnam, among problems, crowding calendar. And I can think of all those that I would add to it. I know why there was no sense of elation as we walked in the door, fresh home from a victory of over 61%. LBJ's first full term as president hasn't even started, and it's clear there's trouble ahead. But Lady Bird finds a focus for her own work as first lady, and though it starts small, it grows. It's the thing she's best remembered for, even if people generally miss what she was really trying to do. From Best Case Studios and ABC Audio, this is In Plain Sight. I'm Julia Swig. Episode three, Renewal. has forgotten. Today, in the shadow of a Texas school book depository building, the people of Dallas paid tribute to the late President John F. Kennedy, fatally shot just a few hundred feet from Dealey Plaza. As it was a year ago, the plaza is filled with wreaths and flowers. November 1964. It's been a year. One long year in the White House. I woke up to say, happy anniversary to Lyndon. For Lyndon and Lady Bird, the moment marks another milestone, a happier one. Today is our 30th wedding anniversary. But in spite of that fact, a curious pall of sadness and inertia has enshrouded me for quite some days now. Their first day back in Washington after the election, Bird visits Walter and Marjorie Jenkins at their place in Northwest. 
Walter was Lyndon's closest aide for 25 years, but a sex scandal drove Walter out just before the election. Today, the conversation is comfortable between old friends, but Lady Bird can see something's changed. Now he appeared quite rested and quite relaxed, but somehow too calm and quiet and rather like an inhabitant of Mars looking down on us strange earth creatures and our little doings here below, rather detached and disassociated. Walter Jenkins is moving on. We talked about the election. He said he felt like an anvil had been lifted from his chest. And he's not alone. With the election behind them, others now feel like they can make a graceful exit. One White House aide is planning to run for governor of Massachusetts. Another leaves to start a new law firm. Press Secretary George Reedy just quits. Privately, it's over Vietnam. It is the leave-taking of so many capable people adds to the aura of uncertainty and stalemate all around. There's something called the Presidential Daily Diary, or in archive geek speak, the PDD. It's an amazing thing, a detailed account, sometimes minute by minute, of the way the president spends every day. I've spent a lot of time with the Johnson PDDs, and I love them. They're chock full of detail. Who the president meets with, who he talks to on the phone. Some of those calls are secretly recorded, by the way. What time he takes a nap what he ate for lunch. Reading through LBJ's PDD, you get a sense of how brutally consuming being president really is. Just for example, November 20th, 1964, the Johnsons are back at what they're now calling the Texas White House. LBJ meets with an economist, a speechwriter, White House aide Jack Valenti and his wife, Judge Homer Thornberry, and his Secretary of Agriculture. His nap is at 2.30. He has calls with his press secretary, Bill Moyers, defense secretary, Robert McNamara, and Texas governor, John Connolly. They actually didn't record what he ate for lunch that day. It's Friday before Thanksgiving. Planes take off and land from the narrow airstrip that runs behind the property. Cars and buses wind up the dusty drive along the Perdinales River, all of them bringing diplomats, cabinet members, staff, potential staff, friends, family, and the press. All of them want something from LBJ, and vice versa. Among the visitors is Stuart Udall. Stu, as he's called, is Secretary of Interior, a former Arizona congressman. The Western U.S. is home to vast public lands, national parks, and natural resources. So when JFK was looking for his Secretary of Interior, it made certain political sense to put someone from the West, like Udall, in the job. The American National Parks. The National Park Service of the United States Department of the Interior. The Department of the Interior, we're charged with the conservation of our natural resources and indeed the conservation of man himself. Some of these resources are renewable, some of them are non-renewable. As conservationists, we must stretch our resources to serve our growing population. Under JFK, Udall had started planning a massive initiative to safeguard the environment manage the growth of highways, expand the national park system, and provide access to green space in cities. He's a friend of Rachel Carson, who wrote the influential book, Silent Spring. The previous year, he'd published his own bestseller, The Quiet Crisis, a sweeping environmental history of the United States. Lady Bird likes Stu Udall. She's kind of fascinated by him and his wife, Lee. They are both Mormon. 
and their grandparents were polygamists. He had a very well-written memo for Lyndon on seven or eight ways that the Great Society was related to his department. In Ladybird, Udall sees a potential ally, someone with influence. Stu and I had a moment to sit down and discuss quietly what he hopes I will become interested in, that is, to make Washington truly the most beautiful city in the country, with flowers and parks and landscaped areas. It sounds innocuous enough, a very first lady kind of cause, but it's the beginning of an alliance that will grow and deepen over the next few years. At the moment, though, it's early days, and she's just getting to know him. I think he's one of the most imaginative idea men in the administration, although I do not know how solid his judgment is. For the flight from the ranch back to Washington for the inauguration, Air Force One is packed with family and friends from Lyndon's hometown, Johnson City. It was founded by his great uncle, James Polk Johnson, in 1879. There's a slight Beverly Hillbillies vibe to this trip. I say that with love. Plane ride up was treat enough to make Aunt Jessie say, I tell you, I may not ever get the glory land, but I feel like I've seen part of it. From all over the world, outstanding artists came to Washington to perform for the president in celebration of the inaugural. Three days of nonstop galas, parties, and dinners at Washington mainstays like the Shoreham, the Statler Hilton, the Mayflower. At the State Department, the Johnsons celebrate the recipients of the Medal of Freedom, joining a who's who of American arts and letters. What a room full of brains and talent it was. Marian Anderson was one of the first to come down the line. Marian Anderson is a contralto, a beautiful vocalist who figured early in the fight for civil rights. She's black, and in 1939, she was denied permission by the Daughters of the American Revolution to perform in front of an integrated audience at Washington's Constitution Hall. So Anderson sang at the Lincoln Memorial instead, in front of 75,000 people. She's one of the Americans I admire most, and I'm delighted to think that she likes me too. At the D.C. Armory, a cavernous 10,000-seat arena built during World War II, the Johnsons attend the biggest of the pre-inaugural galas. It's staged by the producer of the hit Broadway musicals The Pajama Game and Damn Yankees. The entertainment is a constellation of mid-60s star power. Alfred Hitchcock is MC. Comedy team Mike Nichols and Elaine May perform, along with Johnny Carson, Barbara Streisand, Carol Burnett, and Julie Andrews. Harry Belafonte sings Michael Rowe the Boat Ashore with his own civil rights lyrics. Alabama's next to go, hallelujah. So Mississippi, kneel and pray, hallelujah. But Lady Bird's favorite act of the night. That forlorn, undernourished little comedian, Woody Allen. He looks like you want to give him a blood transfusion. But his monologue about the man who shot the moose strapped him to his car, and the moose came too in the Holland Tunnel. So the man in her diary, Lady Bird tries to retell Woody Allen's bit about the moose. Introduce the moose. You know how people do that, retell jokes? Because he didn't want to say, this is a moose. She's not a comedian. The last event before the inauguration is a classical music concert at Constitution Hall. Lyndon managed to keep an appropriately interested expression most of the evening. To be fair, 
it's been a long haul. Wednesday, January the 20th. Dawned beautiful and bright and early. The day had come. A new page of American history is inscribed in the nation's capital as President Lyndon Baines Johnson leaves the White House to take the oath for his first full term as 36th President of the United States. They ride from the White House to the Capitol. Just a year ago, they took this same trip with Jackie and Bobby Kennedy to see JFK lying in state. Mr. Johnson was returned to office by the most overwhelming vote in history, a mandate to the Texan who succeeded to the office in the wake of the tragedy in Dallas. We rode down the avenue, Lyndon and I in one car, one with a bulletproof glass top and sides, crowds already thick along Pennsylvania Avenue, the children in a car rather close behind. I had reminded them to use every moment to look at the people on both sides, to wave at them, to recognize anybody they knew with a special look that would let them know they were seen. Chief Justice Warren administers the oath as Mrs. Johnson establishes an historical precedent. For the first time, a president's wife holds the Bible, a gift from his mother, as Mr. Johnson is sworn in. Soprano Leontine Price, born in Mississippi, the first black lead soloist at the Metropolitan Opera, sings America the Beautiful. One of the best moments. Her voice is so rich, she's one of the great. I introduced her to as many of the relatives and Senate wives as were within reach. The inauguration has the largest crowd in American history, 1,200,000 people. It's a record that stands until Barack Obama is inaugurated in 2009. There's a parade, more balls, parties, and dinners. The Johnsons attend five of them. At the Mayflower, Lyndon and Lady Bird danced to The Way You Look Tonight. Like Cinderella, we tried to make it home by midnight and were back in the house by 12.30, grateful that everything had been accomplished with dignity and grace and that it was over. Two days after the inauguration, Lady Bird heads to Camp David, the rustic presidential retreat in Maryland's Catoctin Mountains with one of her daughters and her friend from Texas. The three eat dinner together and watch a new Disney movie, Mary Poppins, as I expected, Mary Poppins practically perfect in every way. After the movie, Lady Bird crawls into bed with a pile of work. But I chose instead a metal box full of letters from Lyndon to me, written in September and October and November of 1934, and from me to him about the same time. Lyndon and Lady Bird were fixed up by a mutual friend. Their first date was over breakfast at the Driscoll Hotel in Austin. I didn't know quite what to make of him. And I do believe before the day was over, he did ask me to marry him, and I thought he was just out of his mind. They have a 10-week courtship, LBJ in Washington and Ladybird in Texas, and they exchange these letters, filled with curiosity, intensity, and that shock of recognition that you might have just met the person you'll spend your life with. I spent about two hours reading them. The importunate young man of 26, was very fresh in my mind and clear and exciting when I turned out the light to go to sleep. In the winter of 1965, the start of their first full term, Lady Bird is focused on how she'll use this platform. She's still got some ambivalence about it. I still find it very difficult, very distasteful, in fact, to say First Lady. Since the beginning of her time in the White House, 
Lady Bird has been hosting women professionals in a series called Doer's Luncheons. Mild as that might sound, she has some pretty heavyweight people over. One of the first is Jane Jacobs, who wrote a book called The Death and Life of Great American Cities. The Associated Press referred to Jacobs as Greenwich Village housewife slash author. And she does look fairly unassuming. Crop bangs, chunky glasses, your cool aunt. But Jacobs has been to war with Robert Moses, the hugely powerful New York City commissioner, when Moses tried to run an expressway through Washington Square Park in Lower Manhattan. Put it this way, there's no highway there today. Jacobs has interesting new ideas about what makes cities work and not work. The kind of planning that we ought to have should not be planning that begins with what is nasty here, what do we take out, but rather what is missing here, which of the conditions that are needed to make this a place that works. Lady Bird's press secretary, Liz Carpenter, called Jacobs and told her, Mrs. Johnson would really appreciate, honey, a nice nine-minute talk on beautification. Jacobs accepted the invitation, as she told feminist author Susan Brownmiller, not to expound, as she said, on inspirational stuff about tulips, but to, quote, talk sense to those women. So I decided that, really, if anything was ever going to get changed, it was going to have to be changed by citizens. Mrs. Jacobs was a forceful, articulate, salty, somewhat controversial speaker. And Jane Jacobs is not the only person looking at how discrimination and urban renewal are joined at the root. Novelist James Baldwin, in a 1963 documentary produced by WGBH, talked about it from a different perspective. They were tearing down his house because San Francisco is engaging, as all most urban cities now are engaged, in something called urban renewal, which means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. And the federal government is an accomplice to this fact. And it certainly wasn't just San Francisco. Between 1955 and 65, federally funded urban renewal projects in more than 600 cities displaced over 300,000 families. Two-thirds were people of color. Lady Bird had seen the problems herself. Here's her reaction to a trip to Harlem in the fall of 1964. It was the bleakest, grayest mass of concrete and bricks, refuse and crumpled papers, no sprig of grass or tree. I hate to think what I might grow to become if I live there. So that term, beautification, Lady Bird's best-known cause, is becoming more for her than inspirational stuff about tulips. And it really starts at home in D.C. We've got the exclusive view behind the table. Every day, right after the show, while the topics are still hot, the ladies go deeper into the moments that make the view, the view. The View's Behind the Table podcast. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. 
first, though. It's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts. As much as the ranch is their haven, Washington, D.C. has been the Johnsons' home for almost 30 years. And it kind of becomes their laboratory, where they try to bring it all together. Civil rights, environmentalism, and sure, tulips. Washington, D.C. is a quirky place in terms of how it operates. Even today, it's not a state. And in 1965, there's no mayor, no city council. The budget is controlled by a committee in Congress, which is led by a notorious white supremacist from South Carolina. Maybe shocking to hear, but 1964 is the first time D.C. residents could vote in a presidential election. In launching his first congressional policy agenda of the year, LBJ calls for what's known as home rule for D.C. It's a civil rights issue. I urge the House of Representatives to complete action on three programs already passed in the Senate. The Teachers' Corps, the Rent Assistance, and Home Rule for the District of Columbia. In 1965, Washington is the largest black majority city in the country, and it's hugely segregated. There's public Washington, the monuments, the mall, the Capitol, where tourists go. There's Northwest, the mostly white quadrant of the city where politicians and people who work in and around government live. And then there's the rest of D.C., places like Southwest, largely black, often run down. Blight is the word people use at the time. And without any representation in government for the majority of D.C.'s residents, these problems are even harder to solve. The D.C. home rule movement is becoming a serious topic. Martin Luther King has described D.C. as semi-colonial. Civil rights activist H. Rapp Brown puts it in even stronger terms in this press conference captured by NBC. Washington, D.C. is a white-collar plantation. You are worse off than any place in the country. You don't even govern yourself. The person who helps Lady Bird connect the dots between a beautiful urban environment and civil rights in D.C. is someone aptly named Washington. Walter Washington heads the National Capital Housing Authority, which is helping relocate residents displaced by the raising of slums in D.C.'s southwest neighborhood in the 50s, more of that urban renewal. He's a lawyer and a veteran of the New Negro Alliance, where he fought for fair hiring practices with a young attorney named Thurgood Marshall. The Johnsons and the Washingtons go way back. Their teenage daughters went to the same school. Walter and LBJ worked together on the girls' science projects, raising baby chicks. Washington has made a professional choice to work within the system, fighting for poor Black residents in D.C. by navigating the bureaucracy, dealing with the white establishment, the congressional committees who control the decisions and the dollars. It's not the direct action of the civil rights movement and he takes a lot of grief for his choice. 
Ladybird kicks off the Committee for a More Beautiful Capital in February 1965. They meet in the Red Room of the White House. It's a mixed group, philanthropists and garden club types, also serious architects, urban designers, the National Park Service, Stu Udall, and Walter Washington. Some of the group wants to focus on how to spruce up the National Mall, the monuments, the area around the Capitol, public Washington. But Walter Washington points out that behind the monuments, there's a wasteland of problems. It's March 9th, 1965. Lady Bird is leading her contingent of committee members and press on a field trip. At about 11.30, we started out in gay, striped little minibuses, all 30 or so of us. The group heads to a little patch of dirt across from the Smithsonian Museum of Natural History. Everybody piles out. Then we stopped at the mall, where there is a long, new bed of pansies, carpet of purple and gold, and I planted a symbolic few to finish it off and for the eye of the camera. In the photos, Stu Udall beams. It's a picture for a national audience, for the donors, for the local businesses, the first lady, some flowers, the national mall. Everyone claps back on the bus. Next stop, a public housing development called Greenleaf Gardens in Southwest. It's just a few miles away, but it's another planet. A small crowd of the neighborhood folks were gathered to greet me, including two school bands who performed loudly and enthusiastically, if not with perfection. This was Walter Washington's bailiwick and his great enthusiasm. A tidy collection of tiny red brick row houses. The residents are black, working class, working poor. The First Lady and her entourage pile out at the home of the McCormick family at 1016 3rd Street. She plants a shrub. She goes next door to plant a flowering tree. It's retail politics. The gist of the whole stop was what I told Stuart Udall, that all of our efforts will fail unless people in these neighborhoods can see the challenge and do the work on their own front yard and porches. I think Lady Bird is reaching for something here, an idea about ownership. And ownership as a concept is something most Black Americans don't feel connected to. For her, beautification could be just a small step in that direction. Years later, after working closely on many more ambitious projects with Lady Bird, Walter Washington summed it up in a 2003 interview with a program called The Visionary Project. A lot of people think Mrs. Johnson is planting flowers. I said, Mrs. Johnson is making citizens. But it's hard not to see the contrast with what's happening at this same moment, 800 miles away in Selma, Alabama. It's direct civil rights activism, not beautification activities. The marchers are now backed up over the bridge. James Foreman, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, James Farmer, John Lewis of SNCC, I believe I see him there, and several white clergymen. And in the background now, you hear the mournful tune of perhaps one of their favorite songs, one of the favorite songs of the civil rights leaders and of the civil rights proponents here. We shall overcome. Let's listen for a moment. It was a day of tension and strain. Once quiet little Selma, Alabama, dominating the news. The marchers, led by the Reverend King, walked the prescribed distance. Here, veteran journalist Ted Koppel speaks to Dr. King. When did you reach the decision that you were not going to try and force your way by? Well, I've, uh, we reached that uh, yesterday and last night and all along, that we would not try to break through the line. This is not in the spirit of the nonviolent movement, 
and that if we were stopped by the troopers, we would stop. I believe it was across that bridge I've driven on so many times. Yep, that's the bridge, the Edmund Pettus, named for a Confederate general and Grand Dragon of the KKK. It's just 25 miles away from Lady Bird's family house, where she spent her summers eating watermelon with her cousins on the front porch. But this was victory. This was sanity. A temporary restraining lid on the volcano to grant time for the good sense of the nation and a strong voting rights bill in Congress to save us from catastrophe. Victory, sanity, meaning no violence, at least not on the bridge that day. But that same night, the Klan attacks three Unitarian ministers visiting Selma from Boston. Reverend James Reeb dies of head injuries two days later. On the day she's planting flowers in the new housing developments of Southwest DC, Selma is very much on her mind. I have to wonder, does she really think that beautification is enough? LBJ's Great Society is a vision for America with a lot of scope. It goes beyond civil rights and poverty. It's also trying to ensure access to arts and culture for everyone. Eric Goldman is a Princeton historian, and he's the guy the White House has brought in to help with this. Goldman is the exact kind of Northeastern elite Lyndon Johnson is always wary about. And because Lyndon is complicated, resentful but grasping, powerful but insecure, he hires Goldman as a kind of in-house intellectual. In February 65, Goldman writes a memo suggesting that the White House host a new event that would say something about the administration's support for the arts. The memo sat on the president's desk for three months because LBJ had other things on his mind. Meanwhile, in this jungle war, the United States is becoming more fully involved with each passing day. In Vietnam, the U.S. now has 60,000 troops. 325 have been killed in action. LBJ has just approved the use of a new chemical weapon, a fire-starting gel that burns hot and sticks to everything it touches. It's called napalm. Lyndon finally asks Lady Bird for her take on Goldman's idea. She likes it, and she takes on planning the festival with her staff in the East Wing. But she's nervous about it. The arts festival is something that I look forward to with shivers and apprehension. We could fall flat on our faces, or it could be great. It's two weeks before the festival when the trouble starts. LBJ gets a letter from the poet Robert Lowell. Although I am very enthusiastic about most of your domestic legislation, Lowell writes, I nevertheless can only follow our present foreign policy with the greatest dismay and distrust. He closes saying, I feel I am serving you and our country best by not taking part in the White House Festival of the Arts. Fair enough. He's also leaked his letter to the New York Times, which prints it on the front page. That same day, Robert Silvers, editor of the New York Review of Books, sends a telegram to the White House that reads, As the weeks pass, some of us have become more and more alarmed by a stance in foreign affairs which seems increasingly belligerent and militaristic. It's signed by 20 artists and writers and no less than six Pulitzer Prize-winning poets. The Times publishes that too. Oh, and there's more. The White House has invited Pulitzer Prize-winning author John Hersey. Goldman sends the Johnsons what Hersey plans to read, an excerpt from Hiroshima, his essay about the aftermath of the first use of an atomic bomb. 
It feels like a not-too-subtle rebuke of LBJ, maybe even implying that he might drop the bomb at some point. This whole thing is starting to feel like a debacle. Tuesday, June 8th, on upstairs from meeting with Liz, Bess, and Dr. Eric Goldman in the Queen's Room to talk about my bete noir, the Festival of Arts, next Monday, June 14th. I was a little, not much, reassured by all they told me. A great deal of work has gone into it, most of it done by Dr. Goldman, most of it good work. But the Lowell affair has gotten us off to a bad start. But as Goldman told the story to the historian and radio host Studs Terkel, the message at lunch wasn't about Robert Lowell's letter or the New York Times. It was about John Hersey. The Johnsons wanted Goldman to stop him from reading from Hiroshima. Goldman tried to explain to Ladybird that censorship is a bad look. If I had called Hersey and done what was wanted of me, namely said, why don't you read from one of your novels and not read from Hiroshima, Hersey would have certainly withdrawn, uh, and a little incident of this sort would turn into uh, one in which the whole world said the president of the United States is a man who does not believe in any kind of freedom. Goldman's just not going to do what Lady Bird is asking of him. He's not going to tell Hersey what he can or can't read. At 10 a.m. on Monday, June 14th, a stone-faced First Lady sits in the front row of the East Room as John Hersey takes the podium. Hersey's excerpt describes how radiation from the blast spurs a perverse explosion of wildflowers that grow in the rubble of Hiroshima. Ladybird's beautification program has been criticized by some people as cosmetic, as being just about flowers. To her, the passage Hersey's chosen probably felt like a slap in the face. But the day improves. Ladybird takes in the festival's dazzling, maybe overwhelming display of work by hundreds of American artists. Paintings by Jasper Johns, Richard Diebenkorn, and Andrew Wyeth. Photographs by Richard Avedon and Dorothea Lange. She shuttles between the White House and the National Gallery. Abstract sculptures stand silhouetted against the petunias and the holly trees in the Jacqueline Kennedy Garden. LBJ had threatened to skip the whole thing, but he shows up, persuaded by his aides to put a good face on it. No people can afford to neglect the creative minds among you. They enrich the life of the nation. They reveal the farthest horizons of man's possibility. And government, as representatives of all the people, should always play a role in stimulating our people. The actor Charlton Heston confronts a writer for the New York Review of Books, Dwight MacDonald, his shirt untucked, who's circulating a petition protesting LBJ's foreign policy. Novelist Ralph Ellison, the author of Invisible Man, won't sign the petition and calls MacDonald's move adolescent. It's a bit of a circus. The guests stay on the South Lawn past midnight. Duke Ellington, a Washington native whose father worked as a butler in the Warren Harding White House, closes out the night with his signature black, beige, and brown. June the 15th, I will remember as Black Tuesday. I called in Liz and Bess to have a postmortem on the Festival of Arts. The press isn't kind to the Johnsons. And we discussed the one-by-one one hammer blows, the front-page stories, New York Times, New York Herald Tribune, even the Washington Post. 
Accenting only Robert Lowell's not coming, John Hersey's coming and lecturing. The New York Times quotes someone describing the day as artistic barbecue, Perdinale's river style. When it comes to Dwight McDonald and his petition, at least she's still got a sense of proportion. It's some uncertainty whether he got four or seven signatures out of the 300 or so guests. But do you think that was the news? No, the fly on top of the feast. Liz Carpenter always tells Lady Bird not to read her own press, and she mostly takes that advice. But there is one journalist whose review she can't resist. Mary McGrory, the best writer of all. Mary McGrory is a Boston native. She had covered JFK and Jackie adoringly. And hers was as cruel and cutting a story as ever I remember. McGrory cuts the Johnsons no slack at all. The whole thing was middle-aged and middle-class, she writes. Canned. When it comes to White House cultural soirees, McGrory says, the Kennedys did it better. So maybe the Johnsons' attempt to showcase their support for the arts fell flat. And yeah, they're not the Kennedys. And LBJ's foreign policy problems are starting to overshadow just about everything else, like Lady Bird predicted now more than a year ago. But Lady Bird and Lyndon are both trying to figure out how to use government to elevate people's lives, whether that's by beautifying a blighted neighborhood or making the arts more accessible. Later that year, in the fall of 65, LBJ pushes legislation through that establishes the National Endowment for the Arts and the Humanities, Lady Bird closes the deal on the art collection for the Hirshhorn Museum. In fact, LBJ ends up being responsible for more public funding for the arts than any president in history. And at least one more thing. You can thank LBJ for funding what will become the public broadcasting system. By the end of the 60s, the Johnsons have left office at this point, PBS has a new hit show. It's actually still on the air. on In Plain Sight. He wants to get out. There is no way out. Lyndon is in full-on crisis. The black beast of depression back in our lives. While across the world, there's more trouble for the Johnsons. War in Vietnam has been raging more fiercely today. The greatest loss of American life in a single But when network television comes calling for Lady Bird, it's an offer Lyndon can't refuse. We uh, want to put on this type of program in color, and I think it would be very stimulating. And uh, how do you feel about that? I don't mess in her business. I'm kind of like Mr. Roosevelt. I let her do what she wants to. The whole thing looked awful, and I felt sick. And as Lady Bird dives deeper into actual policymaking, she finds that not everyone's on board with the idea of a powerful woman in the White House. The original cartoon said, impeach Lady Bird. That's coming up next on In Plain Sight, Lady Bird Johnson. In Plain Sight was written and executive produced by Adam Pincus and me, Julia Swig. It's based on the work I did for my book, Lady Bird Johnson, Hiding in Plain Sight. Executive producers for ABC are Victoria Thompson and Eric Johnson. Our producer is Ann Carkey. Ali Gallo is our associate producer. Susie Liu is ABC's archival producer. Associate producers for archival are Isabel Dorval and Dana Schaefer. 
This episode was edited by Adrian Lilly with additional editing by Vanessa Lowe and help from Lindsay Cradwell. It was mixed by Dean White. Our theme music is Crossbone Style by Cat Power. Original music is composed by Sam Retzer. Our music supervisor is Linda Cohen. Our artwork is by Teddy Blanks at Chips NY. Special thanks to Kevin Pham at Best Case Studios. And thanks to Joshua Cohan, Liz Alessi, and Stacia Deshishku at ABC Audio, Mike Kelly and Beth Hoppy at ABC News Longform, and Ian Rosenberg and Kimberly Brown, who handled our legal and standards review. In Plain Sight is a co-production of Best Case Studios and ABC Audio. Some material was edited for clarity and time. Be sure to subscribe to the In Plain Sight podcast, and if you like what you heard, leave us a review. Listen to new episodes every Monday. As in previous campaigns, it's the economy, stupid. We'll be looking at that this morning. First, though, it's the news, stupid. It is the economy, stupid. It's not the economy, stupid. It's national security, stupid. It's the hair, stupid. In 1992, one of the best-known pieces of presidential campaign wisdom was born. It's the economy, stupid. But was it actually the economy that won Bill Clinton that election? In a new series from the 538 Politics podcast, we're taking a look back at conventional wisdom from past elections with a critical lens. Where did that wisdom come from, and does it hold up today? Find the Campaign Throwback series in the 538 Politics feed wherever you get your podcasts.